on this podcast, we normally focus on the Weird Boar Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. However, on this episode, we've got a bit of a special mission in mind just for you and your special someone. On this episode, we are looking at G.I. Sweethearts number 45. But before we get down to it, a little retroactive history for you. Indeed. Welcome to the special mission of love. I'm going to apologize for putting this particular retroactive history at the intro of a romance comic special mission right now, but some things just can't be helped. While reviewing Weird War Tales 30, Max made a Code Brown reference. Yes, we're going there. Now, I've always thought it was simply a childish term for a certain type of toilet humor because, you know, there's certainly no shortage of that out there. So imagine my surprise to discover that there is actually such a thing. There are hospital codes. In Australia, it's for external emergencies, disaster, mass casualties, etc. In Canada, it's a spill of chemicals or hazardous materials. There you go. And in the U.S., it's for severe weather. There's a storm brewing joke there, too, no doubt. Yes, this is the second episode in a row where I've had a retroactive history for the Red Baron story. But that should be it. Thank God. And by the way, I found an actual Code Brown graphic for the U.S. that you simply couldn't make up. It's already in the album. Moving on to the Intel report. Staying on theme by going a bit off the beaten path. Again, thanks to a comment Max made. Archie 1941 by Archie Comics, a five-issue miniseries from September 2018. Script by Mark Wade and Brian Augustine, and art by Peter Kraus. Archie has been around for over 75 years and has been through many significant moments in time, but never before have we seen the characters take on real-world events as they unfold. World War II is looming, and Archie and many young men from Riverdale are close to enlistment age. If you're a Riverdale teen, how would you cope with a looming, world-changing event? And how do you and your parents respond? when the war begins. Moving into the title details. Happy Valentine's Day, one and all. The title that would be G.I. Sweethearts began as Love Diary in September of 1949 under the Quality Comics banner. The next 30 issues, 2 through 31, were titled Love Diaries and ran from November of 1949 to April of 1953. Renamed G.I. Sweethearts, it ran for 14 issues, 32 to 45, from June 1953 to May 1955. The title was renamed yet again as Girls in Love in September of 1955 with issue 46 and ran until issue 57 in December of 1956 when the whole thing ended. All right, now that Rich has properly set the mood, starting us off with a code brown and all On Valentine's Day, you're welcome. (laughs) It's a horrible way to start today, man, with the code brown. We are just romantics at heart, and romantics at fart. There you go. I'll just go right for the fart joke. You know, why not? Uh, Now that we've got that all settled, and you know the deal, you know the mission this time out, you've gotten yourself your, your favorite, like, hot tub accessories, you're setting the mood to get the candles lit, we'll give you time to get that all set up. 
get yourself into a groove, find your happy place. We'll play a little podcast promo for another sure to be very appropriately romantic show. And when we come back, it's date night on the Weird Warriors podcast. So which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Ant-Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? What about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? Uh, Doc Samson. Who is he? Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And hey, we're back. Welcome to Valentine's Day on the Weird Warriors podcast. As we let you know before the promo there, we are taking a little side trip to GI Sweethearts number 45 this time around. And Rich is going to give you the cover detail. We have no record of the creative team, which is unfortunately going to be a trend this issue. But the price was 10 cents. The yellow and black title sits on a blue sky under the title of the tagline how could i tell the soldier i loved that i was duty bound to deceive in front of a row of buildings a dressed up gi watches in shock as a blonde woman in a black and red blouse and a charm bracelet kisses and embraces another man in a suit in the front seat of a green convertible tears are running down her cheeks as she thinks Don couldn't be expected to understand, and I'm sworn to secrecy and can't even explain. In a yellow box to the lower left, three other stories are listed. An impulsive promise. Furlough masquerade. No place to live. Cover date, May 1955, but you already knew that if you were paying attention earlier. Killjoy, the GI is wearing maroon tie that would actually be some shade of khaki. And I'm going to give Max the CNC here because I've been doing all the talking so far. All right, see? Romance comics are already wearing off on you. A fashion-based killjoy. (laughs) As for the cover overall, it's a great piece of work. I do feel that the buildings behind the GI are a bit stiffly drawn, and there's a lack of implied perspective that makes our GI look like a GI ant. But the title logo is a bit weird to my eyes, too. It's, It's nicely done. I like the dropped shadows behind the letters, but it just lacks any sort of flair to it that lets you know that this is a romance title. Sure, the drawings below take care of that all pretty well, but in a house ad featuring a bunch of logos, this one wouldn't give much of a visual impression of its genre. Unlike, say, the Weird War Tales logo, which does a fine job of that all by itself. The drawings of the characters, however, are the focus here, and it's where all good romance comics shine. The emotions are clear, the hair is perfect, and the clothes are rendered with almost obsessive attention to detail, barring the odd tie coloration snafu, sure. As I said, overall, really good stuff. Okay, I gotta keep being the military nerd here. Who, uh, Whoever drew the GI did a good job of it. Uh, Eisenhower jacket, garrison cap, branch devices on the collar. This is probably the first romance comic I have ever picked up. So I'm going to have to stick with what I know, man. 
but hey, I like the 1950s angst here. Uh, quick sidebar and timing being everything, though, I did pick up Love Everlasting 4 by Image Comics off the comic store shelves last week. I'd already written the script, which was a full-length story about a World War I soldier finding love at a bistro during his leaves from the front. So I guess that's two. First up, Furlough Masquerade. Eight pages. Pencils possibly done by John Fort. That's all we know about the creators. Janet lives in a town near an army base. Most of the girls dated servicemen and she was no exception, often enjoying the company of Lieutenant Tom Johnson and Corporal Paul Kent. Her heart belonged to no one and she liked it that way. But one morning, riding her bike home from shopping, she almost runs down Private First Class Don Lansing and crashes into a row of hedges in the process. They can't help but laugh as he helps her up. Lansing escorts her home and asks her on a date to go ice skating the following night. She agrees. Picking her up, Lansing sees two framed photos of Johnson and Kent sitting on a table and mistakes them for her brothers. Janet awkwardly says they're just friends. Later, Janet is surprised to bump into Johnson at the rink, who had called her earlier looking for a date. She can't refuse Johnson a dance, but Lansing looks on with a hint of jealousy. After Lansing drives her home, Janet waits for a kiss goodnight but instead he just walks her to her door. Lying in bed that night, she tries to analyze the evening's events. She realizes how much she likes Lansing already, but wants to play it coy. The next weekend at the Shore Club dance, Janet and Lansing are having a great time until Kent cuts in. Lansing is quiet on the drive home and Janet decides from now on she'll refuse any other boy that tries to cut in. But almost a week goes by and Janet doesn't hear from Lansing at all. She's getting frantic when she's surprised by the doorbell. It's Lansing, wearing the rank of Master Sergeant. He sweeps her into his arms and explains he'd stayed away because he wanted to surprise her with his promotion. Janet wonders about such a huge advancement, but as they go out to celebrate, her heart sings with joy. He loves her and she loves him. On their way back from lunch, they witness a motorcycle cut off a truck. The truck swerves off the road and hits a tree. They stop to help the driver, who's distraught. His boss will think he's too old to drive and will fire him. But if Lansing would tell the police what he saw, then everything would be all right. However, Lansing is oddly reluctant to do so. He drives the old man to the police station and drops him off so he can park the car. But Janet is shocked when Lansing abruptly speeds off. She doesn't understand why Lansing refuses to help with such a simple thing. After he drops her off at home, Janet weeps, wondering how she could have misjudged Lansing so badly. But suddenly the door bursts open and Lansing grabs her. He's going back to testify for the old man, and he does. The old man is grateful, and the police begin the hunt for the cyclist. But when Lansing brings Janet home, a grim expression comes over his face. He has to go back to base tonight and doesn't know when he's going to be able to see her again. Peering out the window, she's shocked to see Lansing standing in his car, tearing off his sergeant stripes. What could that possibly mean? Tossing in bed that night, Janet vows to go to camp herself the next day and get to the bottom of this mystery. Whatever it is, she won't let him endure it alone. But the next day, the clerk can find no record of a Sergeant Don Lansing. Leaving the office, she's stunned to run into Lansing wielding a shovel on yard detail. He confesses that he wasn't a Sergeant. That was why he hadn't wanted to help the old man because he knew the army would find out. But Lansing had a good record. 
The major called it an affair of the heart and went easy on him, only giving him a week of extra duty. Janet can't understand why he would think such a thing. Lansing further explains that the other two bows both outranked him. What chance would a lowly PFC have? Janet throws her arms around him and proclaims it was him that she'd wanted all along. She doesn't care about rank. She just responded once he dared show her how deeply he cared. They kiss and curtain. Killjoy, page two, panel one. Corporal Kent is wearing two chevrons and a rocker with a T in the middle. Eliminate the rocker and he's a technician fifth grade who is addressed as corporal as seen here. If you keep the rocker, he needs another stripe to make him a technician third grade, which would be the equivalent of a staff sergeant today, like me. Whatever rank Kent is wearing doesn't exist. And oh, by the way, all technician ranks were abolished by the army in 1948, although the concept was restored with new specialist ranks in 1955. Also, as an example, page three, panel one, Lansing is wearing his cover indoors, his hat. You almost never wear your covers indoors. Page five, panels five and six, Don and Janet go out to lunch, but his headlights are blazing like it's night. Comments and commendations. What? the hell was Lansing thinking? Even Janet was suspicious of that promotion. No one goes from E3 to E8 in one hop. It doesn't freaking happen. Maybe to E5, Buck Sergeant, which would still outrank Kent. The army takes an understandably really dim view on people parading around in ranks they haven't earned. Good thing the major was a soft ear. Lansing had been in the stockade or busted or both. But to the story. What says 1950s like page two, panel four, as a stunned Lansing sits on the ground next to Wall, exclaiming, suffering cats, as Janet Crean screaming into the bushes on her bike. I liked page seven, panel four, the dashing profile of Lansing helping out the driver at the police station, and page eight, panel six of the two passing soldiers gazing with approving eye at the two lovebirds in an embrace. As Huey Lewis once said, Rich, that's the power of love. You know I took a special interest in Lansing's affinity for feline-focused exclamations, too. He also lets loose with a great cats on page six, panel two. I have a theory about this, but it requires a detail from another story in this issue for it to really come together. And, And I will get to it, too. I'm not crazy. As for the explicit content of this story, though, not being able to keep even the macro details, let alone the minutiae of military rank straight in my head, despite all my years of reading G.I. Joe comics, Lansing's move of faking a promotion lacked even the context the writer was trying to lend to it for me anyway. It just seemed an especially dumb move. But I've also seen some pretty dumb moves get made by men and women over one or the other in the course of my life. Some even made by people who had the misfortune of looking very much like me. Sure, this is a silly, overwrought little story, but that's what I'm here for when I read a romance comic. The art in this story is pretty great throughout. So I'll call out something about the coloring work that I really like and will mention again before we're done here. You can see it on page four, panels three and four, And on page seven, panel seven, all scenes in Janet's bedroom, presumably with the lights off, but each lit in a monochrome color to suit the mood of her thoughts. 
Sure, page three, panel four could be seen as typical shorthand for darkness, but the other two are reddish pink, as though the turmoil of her emotions were making themselves known in the visible spectrum. This is the kind of work that is routinely replaced by drab, overly realistic recoloring in today's modern reprints. It's a fun little tale here with plenty to enjoy just from the sheer craft on display, despite the fact that it's a fun read anyway. The final panel, I feel, does need a bit more work to make it feel like an actual ending, but hey, I'd say we're off to a good start. Now let's see if we can follow up on that with the second story in the issue. This is called My Impulsive Promise. It's seven pages long. It's reprinted from Love Comics number 31 from June 1953. No clue on the creative team, but isn't mystery part of what we're here for when we're talking about love? The synopsis for this tale of Trist goes a little something like this. Betty Rowan is a small-time singer that rounds out the USO shows in Korea. While performing one night, she sees a soldier in the front row staring at her. It was so odd. She felt like she knew him from somewhere. After the show, the soldier, Corporal Bill Sherrill, sneaks backstage to talk to her. He was strangely drawn to her as well. Yeah, I bet he was. There's an incredible magnetism between them that overpowers all reason. A sudden swift love swept them together, and they passionately embraced under a full moon. She was heading to Tokyo that night, and he was mere days away from going to the front. Betty promises to wait for him if he wants her to, and Bill gives her a keepsake ring that had belonged to his mother. They are now engaged, and he tells her not to let anyone break her faith in this moment. Sure enough, several members of her troop tell her she's nuts. Two lonely people in a war having a passionate moment does not equal a marriage. Has she not seen speed? I mean, come on. But Betty remains true to her promise. A month goes by back in the States, but no letters from Bill arrive. However, an invitation to a surprise farewell party for the son of some former neighbors of Betty's does arrive. Roy Martin is joining the Navy, and the mere mention of Roy's name stirs wonderful memories in her from their time together in high school. It quickly becomes obvious that Roy is equally pleased to see Betty. They spend the whole evening talking and the years slip away. Must be like two or three of them even, I don't know. <laughs> the casual goodbye kiss unleashes a surge of emotion in her. This was a man she had known and loved. Betty realizes she'd made a terrible mistake with Bill. Her friends were right. A whirlwind romance had swept her off her feet. She couldn't even remember what Bill looked like and he still hadn't written. She loved Roy, but she had promised herself to Bill. When Roy asks Betty to marry him before he leaves for the coast, Betty's heart aches to accept. But what if Bill was lying sick in the hospital, relying on her promise to wait? Betty professes her love to Roy, but also says that she can't marry him and she can't explain why. Realizing he's getting the brush off, Roy picks up his sea bag and leaves. Tears run down Betty's cheeks as she watches Roy leave, wishing she could tell him the truth. Weeks pass and still no letter from Bill. 
Betty is moody and depressed. But finally, a letter from Bill does arrive. In it, he admits they both acted like two people in a badly written romance novel, or comic, <laughs> in the heat of the moment. In dramatic wartime setting, he had even forgotten the girl he was supposed to marry when he got home. He begged for Betty's forgiveness. No jilted woman had ever been happier. Betty sends Bill's ring and a friendly letter back out immediately. And when Roy comes home on his first furlough, Betty tells him that she will marry him now. Roy is confused, but immediately takes her back. Because we're in a romance comic, people. Betty knows a minister that specializes in furlough weddings. <laughs> and <laughs> they need a dramatic backdrop for romance because theirs was real love. And of course, since we finally have some real love going on here and a happy ending, Rich is going to swoop in and kill Joy at all. It's the title of the bit. <laughs> Corporal Cheryl is wearing sergeant stripes on page two, panel six. But other than that, Max. Okay, fine. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm sure I believe you. All right. So for his comments and commendations for this one from me, this story turns up the romance comics and the old comics man dial quite a bit from the first one. But <laughs> young lovers making outrageous packs with each other? Check. Sudden twists and misunderstandings leading to unnecessary turmoil? You bet. Extremely convenient resolution and how. This is a simply iconic example of the genre, and it was a fun one to read through, too. The art, of course, was excellent, and I'll call out the silent clinch shot. It's a romance comic, folks. There's a lot of them in here. On page two, panel four, which is downright gothic in composition and execution, and even more so then the first story, this is where the title shows its Love Diaries roots. Reprint from another series, or no, with purple prose peppering the spaces between the panels all over the place. As for the old comics man, Bell, sure, it ringeth all over this book, but it's just a little bit louder on page four, panel two, where Roy says to Betty, that's not the way old friends say goodbye, is it? Here. Let me have something to remember. And, you know, Betty acquiesces and says, of course, Roy, just for old time's sake. And Roy plants one on her. So, you know, it's a, the mores of the time are a little bit different. That's not the way friends say goodbye. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is, buddy. Just uh, say goodbye and, and, you know, then you don't grab the person and, and press your lips onto their mouth. But hey, you know, 1950s, right? I also have to call out most of page seven which is just packed with stuff I liked. Panel two, a fine example of something that reprehensible Roy Lichtenstein would have surely stolen from one of his own works of art if he'd seen it. Panel four, Betty's hooray, I've been jilted pose, just excellent. And panel seven has more of that monochrome mood coloring that I mentioned before. And hey, did anyone else notice the uh, little kid trying to get run over by a Jeep on page three, panel two? Very entertaining stuff. And I mean, the kid probably made it, I guess. We'll never know. <laughs> but yeah, going back to your page two, panel four, the gothic one, the, um, the there's a century in the background when the two lovers are in their passionate embrace, which just completely 
adds to the power of that panel. That, that is a great panel. But yeah, the, the splash page is epic. A guilty looking dressed up Betty in Roy's arms on a storm swept night with the image of Bill in the clouds sternly reminding her that she'd promised to wait for him. Might be the best panel in the whole book. In a writing call out, page four, panel three, this was a man I'd known and loved. This was a man whose pounding heart told me he had never forgotten his love for me. Whoo! These high school crushes re-entering your life at a later stage can have a devastating effect on you. And the advent of social media in this day and age has drastically enabled such reunions. So I shall continue on to the next tale of love. I just, I just want to say, I've, I've never heard of such a thing happening. Social media causing problems like that? Oh, no. Sure. Divorces have like tripled since, you know, social media has <laughs> come on the scene and old nothing lovers but, have found each other. Yeah, social media, <laughs> nothing but a positive development. It's just made the world better. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Some alternate reality. But hey, speaking of which, duty bound to deceive. <laughs> it's our cover story. Eight pages reprinted from Love Comics number nine from May 1951. Guess what? No clue on the creative team. Private first-class Don Foley is the darling of Patsy Lang. They're madly in love, and she promises to wait for him as he serves in the army. But she's a patriotic girl that wants to do her part. So she's gotten a job with the Kelsey Defense Plant. She's fairly bursting with pride on the job, until one day Mr. Lawson of the Plant Security Division sends for her. Someone is leaking information from the plant and they suspect it's a man named Lou Bender. Bender has an eye for attractive ladies, and Patsy certainly fits the bill. Lawson asks Patsy to make Bender's acquaintance, go out with him as much as possible, and learn who his friends are. It's a little out of her line, but she knows her call to duty when she sees it. Lawson reminds Patsy this is top secret. Absolutely no one must know. She understands, but hopes Don never finds out. How could she explain? Fortunately, he didn't get out of camp too often. The next day, Patsy walks into Bender's office wearing a tight red sweater that doesn't leave much to the imagination and announces she is now working there. Bender immediately recognizes his good fortune. Lucky me! Where have you been all my life, baby? If you need any help, ask for little Lou. I like your style. Getting a date was no more difficult. How about dinner for two, honey? You're a cute kid, and we're going to see a lot of each other. Patsy doesn't know if it was the role she was playing or Bender himself, but she's revolted by it. After their date, Bender has to leave early for important business. Patsy tries to follow him in her car, but loses him in the vicinity of the plant. Returning home, her phone is ringing. It's Don. He'd had a pass out of camp to visit and wondered where she'd been. She weakly explains that she was working overtime at the plant. Unfortunately, Patsy is also busy the following night and can't see Don again. She hates the deception, but is in too deep to quit now. The following night, Patsy goes dancing with Lou, and it's torture, longing for the sweet security of Don's arms instead of the loathsomeness of Lou. Sitting in his car back at Patsy's home, Lou makes his move and kisses Patsy, just as Don walks up. Don calls her a cheat and storms off. Patsy runs after him, but Lou stops her. Didn't know there was a soldier on the scene. Getting rid of him leaves an open field for me. But for Patsy, now, there's only nothing. 
A torrent of tears that evening doesn't wash away her grief. Still sworn to secrecy, she writes a letter to Don asking him to trust her, that she was his forever and she would justify that faith. Days pass. There's no word from Don and no evidence against Lou. But another date with Lou, he again apologizes for an early evening due to some important business he has to attend to. Patsy runs to her car to follow him, only to have Don appear. He witnessed Lou leave and to see them. Your letter almost had me convinced, but I guess I'm just a sucker. She has no time to explain as she speeds off. Believe in me, I have to hurry. It's urgent. This time, Patsy follows Lou to the plant. There's no business going on at that hour. Hurrying after Lou on foot, she plows headlong into him and knocks an armload of classified documents to the ground. It's true, she exclaims. You are stealing plans for the new field gun. You are the one that's been giving out the information. So that's your game, you snooping little spy. You'll never get the chance to squeal. I'll shut you up for good for being a double-crossing game. He grabs her by the throat and begins to strangle her. But Don comes charging in with two policemen in tow. A savage right to the chin knocks Bender away from Patsy, and the policemen take him into custody. Don had followed in a cab once he realized something was wrong. Back at home, Patsy tells Don the whole story and teases him to remember that Patsy Lang will always be waiting for him. But Don doesn't want Patsy Lang. The girl he wants is Mrs. Don Foley. Killjoy. The patch Foley is wearing belongs to the China Burma India Theater, CBI, or derisively, Confused Bastards in India, a stateside PFC wearing a patch 1951 from the reprint for an overseas theater that stopped being passed out in October of 45 is stunningly unlikely. Page six, pen one isn't perfect, but it's the best of the patch's appearances in the story. Uh, Max also has something to say about that particular panel later on. Comments and commendations. In the military, we call the guys that stay at home and move in on our girls while we're away serving the country, Jody. They're constantly referenced in derogatory ways in what used to be called Jody calls or cadences, usually in very <coughs> colorful terms. In today's kinder, gentler military, cadences have been cleaned up, but you can still catch them in movies like Full Metal Jacket and Stripes. Patsy makes a nice Matahari reference on page three, panel five, which is perhaps not the best one to make considering Matahari was an exotic dancer that used her feminine wiles to collect information for Germany during World War I. She was caught and executed by firing squad by the French in 1917. The first words Bender says establish him as a pompous jerk. The later half of the story develops a Hitchcockian feel as the plot thickens, although the panel where Don comes riding to the rescue, page eight, panel four, is almost comically bad. I loved the 50s bad guy speak on page eight. Stupid little spy, you'll never get the chance to squeal. I'll shut you up for good for being a double-crossing game. Awesome story. <laughs> All right, I tend to agree. Now, would the Rick Springfield of his time have been considered a Jody? Would he have penned a chart-topping hit called G.I.'s Girl? It's impossible to say that I'm 100% wrong. This however, is where we follow up on my cross-company continuity conspiracy caper at last. Patsy, as some of you may know, is also the first name of Marvel's Patsy Walker, a romance series star who was later brought into the superhero side of the Marvel Universe as Hellcat, inheritor of the Cats costume, Greer Nelson, who later became Tigra, 
and longtime member of the Defenders. Patsy also appeared in the one-time Netflix series Jessica Jones, where a version of both of her past Marvel Comics identities were strongly incorporated. So Patsy Walker has a history of traveling between genres and mediums as a character. Who's to say she couldn't make the leap between mere publishing companies as well? Perhaps Walker is less a surname than it is a title. A hint at her true metafictional power. Someone get me Grant Morrison on line one. Okay, where was I? Can anyone else hear colors? Okay, so as for this story, what an unexpectedly cool little treat this was. Intrigue, actual danger, violence, and old comics man bells ringing to beat the band. Craftwise, we're hit early with some great examples of that unrealistic coloring that I love so much. On page two, panels one and three, and panel four on that page, Don's hand behind Patsy's back looks a little weird with the pinky out going on there. Just a weird choice. The honey trap plot walks hand in hand with a sexual harassment case, of course, in modern parlance, as seen on page three. Patsy's boss is like, look, you're hot, so we figure we'll put you in some danger, see? In the next panel, Patsy refers to herself as the designing female, which threw me a bit, as I'd only heard that phrase before from the 80s, 90s designing women sitcom, which I only watched some of, as it was fine, but it was no Golden Girls by a long shot. I actually looked it up, and apparently designing was used to mean artful and scheming, conniving and crafty, and probably most often combined with the mention of a woman or female immediately afterward, because, you know, sexism. As Rich mentioned, Blue wastes no time from the very moment of his debut, making it clear that he is a scumbag, baby, and grabbing that old man, or old comics man, Bell, and shaking it like someone told him it would grant him three wishes. <laughs> Just a total classic heel through and through. I got a kick out of the diary entry on page four, between panels four and panel, or panels four and five, where Patsy bemoans having to suffer the loathsomeness of Lou. On page six, panel one, Patty pulls off two-thirds of a romance comic hat trick by getting called a temptress and a cheat by two different men in one panel. Excellent stuff. On page eight, panel three, Lou tries to strangle her while threatening to end her life, as if his intentions weren't clear. Was this reprinted from an EC comic? Just something else to see, really. I was like, he's actually trying to kill her. I Kind of kind of surprising. And on page seven, I have no less than three art spotlights to call out. Panels two and three are nice and moody and would work well in a horror comic. And panel seven is perhaps the best example of the comic book coloring phenomenon that I've been talking so much about. Blanket yellow color of the spotlight and everything within it with a uniformly green background. Just great. Not realistic at all, really but a fantastic piece of work, I say. So I was a huge fan of this one. Next up, it's a little text story that Max historically does not read, and I historically do. And yeah, we're going to cover it as quickly as possible. He deserted me. A seven-eighths of a page text story. In a nutshell, Nora is engaged to Jerry. 
but she falls in love with Mitch, 15 years her senior, and starts dating him on the side. Jerry finds out about it and angrily tells Nora that Mitch is engaged to marry General Doig's daughter. She doesn't believe him, but it turns out to be true. Nora realizes her mistake and returns to Jerry. <sighs> Sheesh. Yeah, that sounds like I was really missing out on something there. <laughs> Woo! Those yeah. things are so good. That's a minute and a half of my life I'm not getting back. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, indeed. All right, so, okay. So we're going to the closing story here. It's called No Place to Love. It's five pages long. It's reprinted from Diary Loves number 31. From April 1953. No clue on the script, but pencils are by Charles Sultan. Inks, maybe, by Dick Beck. Those are real names. I'm sure of it. The synopsis for this romantic little tale goes a little something like this. Bob McShane and Cora want to marry desperately, but finding a place to live and the teeming Navy town is impossible. Every evening, they're tortured by having to say goodnight and parting. Marriage without a home was doomed to failure. Cora is living with her sister Joan and brother-in-law Ed as the young couple searches for a place to call their own. Days turn into weeks and then months. Every vacancy they find is either taken before they arrive to check it out or a run-down dump with a rent way beyond their means. Again, this story doesn't take place in 2022, uh, even though it seems like it right now. <laughs> the two lovers grow bitter and discouraged. Bob worries that he may ship out soon, and then it'll be months before they can get married. He begins to wonder if it's worth the agony, and Cora begs him to be patient. If you loved me, nothing would make you give up. So now I don't love you? Why didn't you tell me a long time ago? You'll probably have no trouble finding some guy in civvies who can pay those fancy rents, he says. Cora bursts into tears and demands Bob go away and leave her alone, which he does. She cries herself to sleep that night. Two weeks go by and she hears nothing from Bob. Her brother-in-law, Ed, says that Bob probably has a girl in every port. In fact, just that afternoon, he'd seen Bob running around with a blonde that would make any man smile while well, his own wife is sitting right there. OK, so Cora doesn't want to believe it, but Joan agrees. Yeah, go figure. It was odd. So much time had passed and Bob hadn't called. Maybe it was true and Bob had moved on. If so, Cora should, too. But she couldn't stay in town and be haunted by the memories of Bob. She had to leave and packed her things that afternoon. Joan tries to convince her to stay, but the town is just too small for two people in love. Cora hates it here, despite having nowhere else to go. She goes to the train station and is about to buy a ticket to Chicago when Bob runs up to her. Cora is, despite her mood, pleased to see him. Joan had told Bob where she was, and Ed had asked about the blonde. The blonde, it turns out, had been a real estate agent who had found Bob and Cora a one-room apartment for only 40 bucks a month. Come on, sweet. 
We're getting married and then we're going home. Home, a place where Bob and I can be alone in to share our love. Who would ever have thought heaven could be rented for only $40 a month? The end. Kill joy. Navy ranks and rates confuse the hell out of me. McShane is wearing three diagonal red stripes on his right shoulder. It took me a while to, for me to learn that that represents a fireman and E3 seem in first class. Just as I'm about to let it go, I realize the stripes are angled in the wrong direction. Page two, panel six. The low end of the stripes should be facing behind him, not in front. Yeah, the guy in charge of drawing all these patches in this comic really needs to study. Yeah, little comments and combinations. For the first time ever, all of my callouts are for writing not art. Men are always full of good advice, Cora. You can always count on your brother-in-law to solve your love problems. Oof. Ah, the 50s. Page three, panel six. But that pales to page four, panel six. If Ed had told me Bob was dead, I couldn't have suffered more. But to realize he had dismissed me from his heart, to know that another woman was thrilling to his kisses, that was more than my anguished heart could endure. <laughs> Oh, man, I love it. Yeah, this one this one pulls out the stops in a lot of ways. So for my comments and commendations, I'd just like to say that no place to fuck, I, I mean, love killed me right from the title on forward. <laughs> Even as deeply rooted in the mores of the past that the basic premise of this story definitely is, I saw some surprisingly modern stuff creeping in around the edges. The definite opinion that all landlords are scum, page two, panels one, two, and three. And on page three, panels five and six, we got Ed, the brother-in-law, being a total prick. But Chorus Sis steps in with a line that you read, but I read with total sarcasm, nearly worthy of Alice from the Honeymooners. She was kind of giving it to Ed there, and I kind of love that. The art is good throughout, um, but maybe the least impressive work in the issue kind of driving Rich to look more at the writing, except for that opening splash panel, which is really well drawn. Still good stuff, of course, all throughout, but not as stellar as the preceding work. I'm just glad that those two crazy kids finally found a place to or share their love, final panel. Uh, side note, maybe don't call the woman that your girl thought you had left her for both beautiful and cute in the two panels right before the end of the story, eh, Bob? Jeez. All right. That's the last story. There's no letters page. Maybe we would have called it Love Notes, Dear John. Eh, you know, eh, it could have done something with it. So with the stories out of the way, we're going to move on to our first set of spotlighted ads in a romance comic, and Rich is going to kick it off. <laughs> a 1950s romance comic attracts a different type of breed when it comes to the ads. Lots of spots for dresses and jewelry. On the bottom half of the inside back cover are a bunch of newspaper-type help-wanted ads. There were some gems in there. But sweet Jesus, for the freaking win, maybe for the whole podcast. Raise earthworms! Terrific profits! Get essential information plus story. An earthworm turned his life. 
said dime earth master system 21 e el monte california oh my god in the name of everything that is holy someone has to fight me <laughs> oh geez and i left it for max and he let me down no surprise there so i had to come around for a second ad friends here's how to get at almost no cost your new real live miniature dog i'll be happy to send you without paying a penny this lovable young miniature dog that is so tiny when even fully grown you can carry it in your pocket or hold it in one hand yet it barks and is a reliable watchdog as well as a pet you can keep it in a shoebox and enjoy many music hours teaching it tricks active healthy, intelligent, and clean. Simply hand out only 20 get acquainted coupons to friends and relatives to help us get that many new customers as per our premium letter. I enjoy my own lively, tiny dog so much. It is such a wonderful company that I'm sure you'll simply love one yourself. Please send me your favorite snapshot photo or Kodak picture when writing for your miniature dog. We will make you a beautiful 5 by 7 inch enlargement in a handsome movie tone frame so you can tell your friends about your bargain hand colored enlargements when handing out the get acquainted coupons free just mail me your favorite snapshot print or negative now and pay the postman only 19 cents plus postage when your treasured enlargement arri arrives and i'll include the movie tone frame at no extra cost limit of two per any one person your original returned with your enlargement and frame also include the color of hair and eyes with each picture. So I can also give you our bargain offer on a second enlargement artfully hand colored in oils for natural beauty, sparkle and life like we have done for thousands of others. I'm so anxious to send you a miniature dog that I hope you will send me your name, address and favorite snapshot right away and get your 20 enlargement coupons to hand out free. Mrs. Ruth Long, gift manager. <laughs> so, so. What is this exactly? Send us your favorite black and white photo of you with pertinent details and we'll colorize it, include a cheap cardboard frame, and as an aside, here's a dog? Wait, what? Supply limited, yeah, I bet. There's a photo of a teacup chihuahua sitting in a drawing of a woman's hand. Please, in red cursive, give me a home. And the word chihuahua doesn't appear in the copy at all. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There are times in these real old comics and magazines that the ads rival whatever subject matter the publication was printed for. <laughs> this was a this was awesome. You see, Rich, it all fits together. The, the the tactic there is to confuse you with the little colorized picture in the cardboard frame, and here's a dog that we never say is a chihuahua, and all that stuff at once is to confuse you so that you don't look too deeply into the secrets of the Earth Master system, which. If your mind is too weak to get past the tiny dog ad, you're not ready for her anyway. So, I, I mean, it's it's for the best. You know what I'm saying? And, and this is also a precursor to what we saw in the 70s when there was a real healthy illegal animal trade going on in the backs of those comics. So maybe this is where it all started. Maybe the little teacup chihuahua is the mastermind behind it all, men in black style or something. I gotta say... The Earthworm ad is the champion of the issue for sure. The rest of the ads in the issue are kind of what you'd expect. Uh, but I did find an interesting wrinkle following the full-page ad for Harford Frocks. It's a full-page ad right before a pile of classifieds, which reads a little something like this. Look, 
Spare time plan, extra money for you, plus lovely dresses that never cost you a penny. No experience needed. You choose from more than a hundred beautiful styles. You've never read more exciting news. Think of making as much as $30 a week in your spare time right in your own neighborhood and also taking your pick of more than a hundred beautiful, colorful, late style dresses, which won't cost you a single penny. All you do now is mail the coupon at the bottom of this page. Don't send any money now or any time. You'll receive absolutely free the most thrilling display of gorgeous styles you ever saw. All the latest fashions, all the new Miracle Wonder fabrics like Dacron, Nylon, Orlon, Raylon, Krypton, Krypton I made up, and scores of the all-important sparkling cottons. Does cotton sparkle? Eh, with the glamorous new finishes in convertibles, casuals, mix and mash, separates, house dresses, suits, sportswear, and hosiery and lingerie, too. What? Okay. Also, adorable children's dresses, which you should mention right after lingerie. Up to $30 a week cash, and the personal dresses you select, all without one penny cost, are yours just for showing the beautiful styles and sending only a few orders for friends, neighbors, coworkers, and members of your family. That's all. You don't pay a cent for your own dresses. They keep, this is a little repetitive at this point, huh? I think they're trying to hypnotize you. And you can get dress after dress, a whole wardrobe, this easy way. What a wonderful way to use your spare hours, evenings, weekends, and probably the rest of your life. So don't wait. Just mail the coupon and everything you need will be rushed to you post-paid and did we mention absolutely free. There's testimonials down there. There's all these really cool drawings of really happy looking, likely very drugged up 50s housewives in these free dresses that look impossibly glamorous but are probably made of paper mache. There's a little thing on the bottom for Harford Frocks Incorporated, Department N3140, Cincinnati 25, Ohio. I don't know. Cincinnati 25, I, I don't know. They're in Ohio. And then you, you mail away for this thing, and they start sending you dresses that you have to pyramid scheme your friends into buying. And I'm not sure what the end game is here. But after that exhaustive, explosively written ad, after that big, indulgent, full-page screed, on the page of Classified's following, featuring the Earthworm offer, we have this sneaky little follow-up buried on that page. It says, amazing, extra money plan, gives you gorgeous dress without penny cost. Oddly edited there. Rush name today with dress size. Harford, Department N2180, Cincinnati 25, Ohio. It seems like an odd kind of two-pronged offensive going on there. If the big ad seems too splashy to be trusted, how about we sneak in a rather modest-looking little classified to catch them off guard? There is something truly fishy going on with these frocks here, people. But we don't have time to figure out all of that now. We're going to move on, as we like to do, from a giant confusing mess like that to a little section that we call Got Any Last Words? Well, of course we do. Have we done a show yet where we haven't? Just like the next five conglomeration we did a couple of episodes ago, this one took a while to create a script for. But hey, if we're going to do a romance book, it had to be a GI-themed one from the 1950s. A little bit of sexism sprinkled throughout, of course, but this was still an enjoyable venture. 
I noticed all the evening shots featured a full moon in front of usually bare trees, which sets an additional mood. I have to go with the cover story as my favorite, and honestly, I don't think there were any true duds in the issue. Some of the lovey-dovey writing was over the top too. Don't worry, folks. Going forward, the only love stories we'll be telling are those that fall on the pages of Weird War Tales, unless you demand otherwise. So this issue was 100% fun for me. Some iconic, very true-to-form stories, with one of them full of some unexpected thriller-style surprises, and a finale that I still can't stop laughing about because I am hopelessly immature. And all that adds up to, we've got a winner of a package here, in my opinion. The artists in particular get to flex different muscles than we're used to seeing in a genre series like this. Even if the clinch shots get repetitive after a bit, they're the dragon on the cover of fantasy novels for this type of book, you know? I'm gonna pick Duty Bound to Deceive as my favorite for its excellent craft, as well as its offbeat thriller espionage elements. And I, for one, would have no problem covering more romance books in the future if we found a reason to. This stuff is great and it would make rich suffer a little bit so why not <laughs> so that's the last words we're going to move on to uh the section where we interface with our readers a little bonding time a little romantic moment between us and and the readers listeners whatever the hell you are out there all five of you all right to a section we like to call the dead letter office but right now this is going to be called love notes <laughs> this episode of Love Notes, the first and possibly last of its kind, focuses on episode 36 of the show, which covered Weird War Tales number 31. But I'd like to remind you, before we get going, about the Red Bubble Weird Warriors podcast PX store that you can go to online. And guess what, people? Somebody did! We received a mysterious email claiming that a Weird Warriors podcast t-shirt was purchased by someone in the UK. Who could this new customer be? And why is it probably Sir Martin Gray? And actually, since I wrote this script, we have photo evidence that it was Martin Gray, and I'll drop that into the script for Rich for later on. But yes, someone else bought something, people. It's a dead heat race between Jason Zeller and Martin Gray for second place to me and Rich as far as who's bought the most merch <laughs> from the show. So also in the Dead Letter office, we like to go over to social media and see who stopped by to give us a like, a share, a hey there, how you doing, and uh, how's your father and all that. And those people were this time around, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Alan Stewart from the Attack of the 50-Year-Old Comics blog, which is freaking great, Ross from Stop, Let's Team Up, comic podcast that covers a lot of cool stuff that I like. Hey, a guy named Martin Gray, who may be a, a recent t-shirt aficionado. Uh, Mr. Paul DeBetta, Wayne Burroughs, Herman Lowe, Tim DeForest of comicsradio.blogspot.com, Herschel Mimis, my buddy and riches, Tom Mix, stop by. I mean, it's got to happen every now and then, right? Someone I actually know. Who knows? It was probably an accident. Uh, Mark Slade from Twisted Pulp Magazine. Paul Hicks, who both Rich and I have recorded stuff with. He's uh, from a land down under, don't you know? He is waiting for doom. He is the flanger. The Checkered Pass podcast guys stopped by. The Checkered Chums visited, keeping an eye on us, making sure we're behaving. And Doc Strange. Doc Strange, Mr. Billy Delicious himself, also stopped by. We got some other g too. We got Tim DeForest. 
the aforementioned Tim DeForest stopped by and his letter. And since we're doing a long one here, I'm just going to read both the letters we got here. Or I'll have Rich read the second one. I don't know. I'm making this up right now. So Tim says, Max's remarks about his dislike of the last page of the dog story reminded me of a scene from one of C.S. Forrester's original Horatio Hornblower novels about a British naval officer in the Napoleonic Wars. By the way, the following comment is in no way making fun of Max's admirable compassion for animals. It's just something that was called to my mind. I, I told Tim there's so many reasons to make fun of me that he shouldn't worry about it. So in the novel Ship of the Line, Hornblower is bringing his ship close to shore so the cannon can strafe a column of enemy troops. The cannon opened fire, slaughtering many of the infantrymen. Then the ship comes even with the column's baggage train with mules and oxen pulling wagons. Hornblower orders his men to open fire on the animals, realizing that this too would hinder the enemy's ability to maneuver and fight. His men groan at the order. Hornblower realizes that his men, who had been happily slaughtering human beings, would miss on purpose firing at the animals. So he orders each gun captain to aim and fire individually, making sure they obey his order. So a quote from the book, Mr. Gerard, he shouted, load with grape. I want those baggage animals killed. A little wail went up from the men at the guns who heard the words. It was just like those sentimental fools to cheer when they killed man, yet to object to killing animals. Half of them would miss if they had the chance. Target practice, single guns only, bellowed Hornblower to Gerard. The patient brutes would stand to be shot at, unlike their masters, and the gun layers would have no opportunity to waste ammunition. Anyway, Tim continues, as brutal as the death of the dog was in Word War number 31, I did see a dramatic reason for it. The death of the dog emphasizes the reincarnation angle of the story, which ends with the cocoon about to give birth to a butterfly. Sarge is coming back again. For me, this scene made me hope that Sarge is not reincarnated with human intelligence or memories. Otherwise, having to exist as a butterfly would be pretty darn depressing. Now, I gotta say, I learned a couple of things from, from that uh, letter from Tim. One, I ain't reading no Horatio Hornblower novels because he sounds like a jerk. <laughs> and, uh, I know, everyone, those are classics and whatever, but you just found a way to talk me right out of that thing I was probably not going to do. So, <laughs> so there's that. But we can always count on Tim for uh, bringing in references from other media for, for us to chew on, and I greatly appreciated that. So the other thing I learned was that uh, no, that still wasn't necessary. You could have skipped the whole monarch butterfly thing and skipped the old yellow part or the old yellow part of the story. And I'm not budging on it. Sorry. So <laughs> we also got a letter from our good friend Jason Zeller, and I'm going to hand the reins over to Rich for that one. He says, Death Waits Twice was a tried and true story of not being able to escape your fate, even though you tried to outsmart him. Even though the sergeant tried over and over again, he still died in an explosion at dawn, just not on the day he expected. I also really enjoyed the panel where the soldiers being blown through the middle of the tarot death card. What a powerful image. I certainly did not feel bad that he finally got what was coming as he continued to sacrifice his men over and over again to escape his own fate. And the sergeant had mad magazine look to his face on the bottom of page two. And the sergeant's face was so funny when he was surprised when he was about to be blown to bits by his own soldier's grenade. The story of a real dog face was hard all the way through for me. Seeing the dog's 
being abused was difficult to see and when Snell shot the Sarge and how nothing was done. How could the superiors let him stay with the unit after that? It just makes no sense to me. The ending, though somewhat expected, was tough to see as it was a glooming and depressing story all around. The revenge from beyond the grave has been done so many times and so much better, in my opinion, in this story. And still, what happened to the skeleton dog we saw earlier on the cover? Not that would have been an awesome story of the skeleton dog pursuing an injured snail through the forest. Doomsday was not a fun story to me. The art really threw me off as it was hard to tell what was going on a lot of the time. It just felt messy and jumbled, agreed. It felt like the panels and artwork did not work well for me. I had to look over again to see what sh which ships were trying to launch and which were shooting down the other ships. I liked the twist ending and that suggested that the Earth was someone's ball to be knocked around at their discretion. I also missed all of the clues alluding to golf as the only type of golf I have ever played is miniature golf. Same. And yay! I am so glad you guys finally got to my email about the Weird Warriors podcast mug. It is a work of beauty and I dare not place any hot liquids in it. Okay, I use mine all the time, so don't worry about it. If you hand wash it, if you're really, really worried about it, don't put it in the dishwasher. But I've been putting mine in the dishwasher and it's been fine. So, hey, you do you. Hey, kid tested, podcaster approved. <laughs> like, you know, I I got to I got to agree, man. You know, that the doomsday was just a mess. Everyone knows that. That was the only time I didn't like that artist art. But yeah, man, like this turns out to be the episode that's all about people buying merch. We finally get to Jason's letter about hearing about us talking about his mug purchase. Martin picked up a shirt. It's happening, people. It's the I still owe I still owe Susie Q a t-shirt, so I got I got to place an order for that too. <laughs> <laughs> the time has come. The tables are turning. <laughs> so I hope you all liked this little romantic diversion, such that it was. And I hope you like the fact that we're. You know, I'm going to promise for, for Rich right now, we're doing this every Valentine's Day. We'll find a way. <laughs> I, I don't care what it is. Some romance comic's going to have to happen because this was a blast. Don't but, worry, everyone. You, you remember Max says all the time he forgets what he was talking about as soon as he hits stop record. So 15 minutes from now, <laughs> it'll be gone. See, but this, <laughs> this, is about, this is about causing you pain. <laughs> This is never going to leave my mind. <laughs> 30 years moving strong. <laughs> exactly. This is a lock. All right. So with that promise of future stories of love out of the way and the episode at a close, as is usual here on the show, Rich has a little something for you. He's a teaser for the next episode. Another first for the Weird Warriors podcast. Listener homework. Any show that is on long enough is going to go into reruns. That time has come with Weird War Tales number 36, a 64-page giant with four stories we've already covered. Three of them are in episode two, so go back and listen to that one again. The fourth is in episode three for extra credit if you're really high speed. But there's six stories we haven't covered. And most importantly, the man, the myth. The legend, Joe Kubert, returns to these pages for the first time since issue seven. Come on by and see if we still feel the same about the reprints now as we did then. Has our love survived? 
or has it faded with time? Also, Joe Kubert, baby. Woo! I love it. So that brings the special Valentine's Day episode to a close, everybody. And like they say at the bar when the lights come up, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here because somebody's got to clean this place up. And who are those people? Well, that's me and Rich. We're the Weird Warriors. We're the Batlin' Bros. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast, and we promise to make love, not war.